This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start out at the CNN website for a series of stories looking at anti-Semitism on college campuses. First is Not Just Neo-Nazis with Tiki Torches, Why Jewish Students Say They Also Fear Cloaked Anti-Semitism by Mallory Simon, CNN. As Julia Jassy picked up her things before flying off to college in Chicago, she had the usual concerns, beginning her life as an adult, making friends, and getting her work done. It never occurred to her to be nervous about being Jewish. She's born and raised in New York, the eldest daughter in her family, captain of her high school fencing team. She was looking forward to becoming more active in the progressive causes she cared about, ending inequalities among Americans, supporting those who looked or believed differently from her to live their best lives. But Jassy found herself excluded or even targeted as soon as her heritage was known. There were the casual jokes, calling the Holocaust an extended vacation for Jews who never came back. Then there were the anti-Semitic slurs yelled at an acquaintance wearing a yarmulke, the traditional Jewish head covering. Jassy sometimes became nervous that she, too, could be targeted if anyone saw her Star of David necklace that she had worn proudly and without hesitation for years. I never before had the experience of being scared to leave my home, says Jassy, who is now 20 and just finished her sophomore year at the University of Chicago. She started a Jewish on-campus group on social media for students like her, and she found many were like her, Jewish students finding themselves the target of hate from both the left and the right, and increasingly from their own peers. It's intense, Jassy says of her online experiences. I've gotten death threats. I've gotten sexual assault threats. I've gotten called lots of slurs. My family's gotten death threats. Those experiences are being felt too often now by American Jews, young and old. Anti-Semitic incidents in the country more than doubled in May, amid violence between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East, compared to the same time last year, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Anti-Semitism became more virulent during May's conflict between Israel and Hamas. One attack saw a 29-year-old Jewish man punched, kicked, and pepper-sprayed by a group who allegedly shouted epithets at him, the New York Police Department said. And anti-Semitic attitudes are consistently higher among young people in contrast to other forms of prejudice, where the more youthful tend to be more tolerant, according to a study last fall by researchers at Tufts University and Harvard University. For Jassy and Blake Flayton, a 20-year-old senior at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., the greatest concern is the more insidious, seemingly regular, and casual anti-Semitism the cloaked language being used, whether knowingly or not, in progressive circles they once considered themselves integral parts of. An American Jew is only used to perceiving anti-Semitism as Nazis in Charlottesville carrying tiki torches, or a swastika being spray-painted onto a synagogue wall, or the Christian right saying that Jews killed Jesus Christ. We're not very attuned to and good at recognizing anti-Semitism when it doesn't come from that extreme side of the political spectrum, Flayton says, but we are going to have to get used to it because that's what's coming here. It's already here.
Anti-Semitic rhetoric has grown at alarming rates on campuses nationwide, according to Matthew Berger, Vice President of Strategic Action Programs and Communications of Hillel International, an international Jewish campus organization. In the last two months alone, Berger says he's dealt with issues on 50 campuses from coast to coast and across public, private, Ivy League, and liberal arts campuses. I've been surprised how widespread it has been over the past two months, Berger says. Campuses that have gotten used to anti-Israel protests have said they've never seen environments as hostile as they have over the two months, and campuses that have never experienced these types of issues are experiencing it for the first time. Both Jassy and Flayton explain their own positions, their culture, their faith, their support for Israel, but not all the actions of its governments, with great nuance. But nuance disappears online, where college students spend so much of the time, and the vitriol there has been particularly harsh. I'm a white supremacist. I'm a Nazi. I kill babies. I'm a genocide apologist. I am a racist. I support ethnic cleansing and colonialism, Flayton says, quoting some of the abuse hurled at him. I get more death threats than my parents would probably like to know about. The simplistic name-calling and lack of complexity that suits social media can also lead celebrities and politicians into fanning the flames by using anti-Semitic language and images, Flayton says. And their messages go to millions who may not spend any time researching or validating, let alone understanding the complexity of what's being shared. Politicians from left and right have been accused of stoking anti-Semitism intentionally or unintentionally. First-term Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene apologized weeks after comparing mask mandates to combat the spread of COVID to the Nazis forcing Jews to wearing yellow stars on their clothing to mark them out. In the Democratic Party, Representatives Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and Cori Bush of Missouri have used the term apartheid referring to Israel. Representative Omar has also referred to Israel as committing an act of terrorism and their actions as ethnic cleansing. Omar has said these are legitimate critiques of Israeli policy, but for many Jews those words have become loaded phrases that are offensive and cloaked anti-Semitism and that are tossed around without explanation of what is meant by the allegation. Supporters of Israel argue the attacks on the country can be seen as bad faith efforts meant to question the legitimacy of the only Jewish state in the world. Tlaib, who is of Palestinian descent, and other members of the squad of uh, progressives recently elected congresswomen have been some of the most vocal progressive voices against Israeli policies and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. These congresswomen have said they stand against all forms of hate. But their comments have drawn criticism from Jewish Democrats who wrote a letter to President Joe Biden saying they were veering past free political speech to being anti-Semitic at their core, which adds to a climate that is hostile to many Jews. Supermodel Bella Hadid, whose father is Palestinian, posted on Instagram a live video from a Free Palestine march at which she took part in chants that led to the official Twitter account of Israel to call her out for comments many view as anti-Semitic. After Hadid was criticized for posts that were seen as anti-Semitic, she explained, This is not about religion or spewing hate, but in the same post went on to use charged language viewed by many Jews as anti-Semitic when she called Israel's actions, colonization, 
ethnic cleansing, and apartheid. Blayton fears that many of Hadid's 43.5 million followers, more than three times the estimated number of Jews in the entire world, may accept her post without question or taking the time to form their own opinions. If a third of her Instagram followers see her posts, then all of those people are going to think that, Blayton says. If just a fraction of them share it on their social media pages, then think of how many millions and millions and millions of people are seeing this information and perceiving it as true. We are greatly outnumbered. He believes the impact of social media cannot be overstated. It helped galvanize progressives behind justice for George Floyd and brought attention to anti-Asian hate. But it can also be weaponized to the point it can put Jewish safety at risk, Flayton says. If Adolf Hitler had an Instagram account, the Holocaust would have happened a lot quicker, he says, because the public would have been convinced a lot sooner that the Jews were plotting to overthrow Germany and weed out the Aryan race and take over Europe, Flayton adds. I'm being glib here because it's an imperfect comparison, but it shows just how dramatic of a situation this is when anybody can say anything they want about the Jewish people and about Israel. Jassy and Flayton both consider themselves progressives. They want to support social justice movements, fight climate change, to join clubs championing progressive causes on campus. But they found their religion being used as a litmus test. And if they tried to talk, it became a catch-22, explaining the history of being an oppressed people only to have that argument dismissed. I was often put in this position where I had to defend Israel before I could be taken seriously with my other political opinions, Jassy explained. A lot of the time, you can be as progressive as you'd like to be on anything, on anything else. But the second that you accept Israel's existence as something that you want to remain or something that's important to you, you're ostracized from those circles. Flayton knows that feeling all too well. The time when organizers said he couldn't bring a pride flag with the Jewish star on it to an LGBTQ march because it was deemed nationalist and could offend someone. Or the time he arrived for a meeting about canvassing for a Democrat in a shirt with Hebrew writing and was made to change by the coordinator. You have Jews, especially Jewish young people, who their Zionism is a part of their identity, Flayton explains, and they're entering these spaces like the campus and they want to get involved in all of these organizations and movements. They want to fight for a $15 minimum wage. They want to fight for universal health care. They want to push for legalization of marijuana nationwide, but they're being forced to check their Zionism at the door. Any sense of Jewish peoplehood, they're being told to check it at the door. Flayton and Jassy said they are not given a chance to explain their stance, referring a reference to their family history or have a debate. Jassy says he isn't given the space to explain. She finds the situation for Palestinians heartbreaking or that many Jews criticize the government of Israel more than anyone else. Her issue is when those critiques go further into dangerous territory, especially when all Jews are held responsible for the actions of Israel, a specific defined example of anti-Semitism adopted by the U.S. and dozens of other member nations of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. There are definitely ways to critique the Israeli government without being anti-Semitic, but it's not what people are doing a lot of the time, she says. 
Jassy says that if she tries to talk about the complex history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that has existed for centuries and remains an almost intractable international geopolitical issue, you're instantly on the wrong side. Flayton says, if a Jew who is liberal, who is left-wing, says I'm a Zionist, they're not given the space to explain all of what that means. That word means is that what that word means is that you support the Jewish right to self-determination in part of our ancestral homeland, not even specifying where the borders are, not even specifying which government they would like to see in charge of Israel, he says. They're not given the space to explain that. They're banished. In many ways, Jassy and Flayton feel they are being trapped in the middle by inflamed rhetoric on both sides. It was much easier to visualize this when Jews were ghettoized, Flayton explains. Now you're talking about a world, a largely online world for the younger generations in which Jews are being excluded from places now, but just in a different way. But the effect is the same. The fear and antagonism of words is increasingly bleeding into the reality of actions. Flayton sometimes takes off his yarmulke when he goes out on the streets in New York. He's seen the attacks against people in his own Brooklyn neighborhood, people targeted for being visibly Jewish, and takes the decision with a heavy heart. At the end of the day, I don't want to get attacked on the train, he says. Jassy also worries about the physical impact of it all, rattling off incidents around the country. Bottles thrown at Jews eating sushi in Los Angeles. Synagogues defaced and defiled. A young Jewish man punched, kicked, and pepper sprayed in New York's Times Square. Jassy is now nervous about bidding farewell to remote learning and returning to campus in such a charged climate. And she worries about the long-term impact of so many young people being filled with hatred for Jews. College anti-Semitism is a small thing until those people grow up, she says. Those people grow up and become doctors and lawyers and politicians and lawmakers. Flayton promises to refuse to be cowed whatever is aimed at him online and off. I can't imagine a world where I let them break me because they would win, he says. What they're trying to do right now is bully Jews off and out of the public forum because we're saying things they don't like. And it would be a colossal waste if we gave in to that. That has never been a winning strategy for our people, ever. CNN's Mallory Simon reported and wrote this story from New York, and Nick Watt reported from New York, Los Angeles, and Lake Worth, Florida. And another piece in this series from CNN by Mallory Simon. Young Jewish Americans rocked by new hate fueled by Israeli-Palestinian conflict. New York. Jewish students are facing violence and abuse many have not encountered before in the wake of this month's fighting between Israel and Hamas. The young Gen Z Americans are confronting hate both in person and online in ways that have surprised and alarmed them, according to organizations that help Jewish Americans and monitor anti-Semitism. I think the tsunami of it was what was most surprising, the rapid escalation and vitriol of it, said Marav Feinbraun, the Hunter College Executive Director of Hillel, an international Jewish campus organization. Students, and I certainly did not expect that. The violence in Israel and in Gaza was the most deadly since 2014 and was the first time any students have faced the anti-Jewish sentiments that are often attached to opposition to actions by the Israeli government. 
and that brought them face to face with the centuries-old dilemma of whether they need to hide their faith to feel safe or if they can be authentically Jewish, Braun said. Some Hunter College students were at Times Square in New York City for a pro-Israel demonstration when a Jewish man heading to the same rally was beaten and kicked while anti-Semitic slurs were hurled at him. Dirty Jew, filthy Jew, fuck Israel, Hamas is going to kill you, go back to Israel, one man shouted as he attacked Joseph Borgen, who was wearing his kippah or yarmulke, a Jewish head covering. What I'm hearing from students is that they're concerned about that, Braun said. They're wondering, is openly looking Jewish going to impact their safety? Borgen said he might consider, might reconsider wearing his kippah now, something he had never thought about before. That hard choice is not even an option. For some of the students' Braun councils, some of whom wear customary or traditional dress and head coverings that make them easily identifiable. Other Jews Braun works with are students of color. Not all Jews look the same, she said, though they now have something else in common. They're terrified because they've never seen that kind of violence against someone who affiliated the way they do, Braun said. Mitchell Silber, executive director for the Community Security Initiative of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, agreed times were changing in the U.S. People are being attacked for looking visibly Jewish, he told CNN. One of the things that was always amazing to Jews in Western Europe was that in the United States that Jews could be visibly Jewish. They could have that beard. They could wear that kippah. They didn't have to feel that their security was at risk. This right now is a bit of a test of the American situation, and I hope that we pass it. The same week as the Times Square attack now being investigated as a hate crime, a Brooklyn man was charged with arson after allegedly attempting to set a synagogue and Jewish school, or yeshiva, on fire. In Boca Raton, Florida, a van drove through a pro-Israel rally with the words Hitler was right scrawled across the window as those inside waved a Palestinian flag and one wore a shirt emblazoned with the Nazi SS with Nazi SS lightning bolts. In Los Angeles, witnesses said people got out of a car outside a sushi restaurant and began asking indiscriminately who was Jewish. The words dirty Jew were heard. Glass bottles were thrown at the table. One man was arrested and police requested his bail be enhanced due to the crime being motivated by hate. Along with these events, another widely shared example of hate was from London, where four men were arrested on suspicion of racially aggravated public order offenses after shouting through a microphone of a moving car. A microphone from a moving car fucked the Jews and raped their daughters while professing support for the Palestinians. Braun found herself inundated with a slew of text messages from her students who were scared and unsure how to act. Anti-Semitic posts also started showing up on students' feeds from people they knew or followed, places from where they did not expect hatred. One student sent me a screenshot of someone who said, Hamas needs more rockets, Braun recalled. Hamas, the militants who control Gaza, fired more than 4,360 rockets at Israel, killing at least 12 people, CNN has reported. Israel said it struck 1,600 military targets in Gaza. Some 248 Palestinians, including 66 children, were killed, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas. A further 28 Palestinians, including four children, were killed by Israeli soldiers during violent confrontations in towns and cities across the West Bank in the 11 days of violence, according to CNN's count of data from the Palestinian Health Ministry in the West Bank. 
Bronze said she felt the same fear and concern at the calls for more violence against Jews as many of the students. She advised them to sit with their feelings for a while, figuring out what was best for them to feel safe, knowing how deeply the online, online antagonism had hurt. Gen Z students live online, and that's where they feel most comfortable, she said. So this one comfortable space for them is now feeling unsafe and at risk because the anti-Semitic commentary and video and images, the videos and images that they're seeing feel to be really nonstop. That's been particularly challenging for them. While dealing with anti-Semitism may feel new to some students, the level of vitriol has hit alarming levels, according to the Anti-Defamation League, which monitors hate. In the past, you'd have a conflict in the Middle East, and maybe you'd see vandalism at a synagogue, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said. We've seen a blitzkrieg of anti-Jewish acts across the country. The organization, for example, found 17,000 tweets with various variations on the same horrific phrase emblazoned on the van in Boca Raton, Hitler was right. The barrage of social media content around Israel and the actions of its government and military has been growing and growing, much of which, as the ADL notes, is filled with hate or misinformation. The sharing of short messages can also be problematic in such a complex and nuanced geopolitical issue. Hillel has long worked on trying to educate people about the dangers of conflating anti-Israel views with anti-Semitic views. What I think is most alarming is that there doesn't seem to be broadly an understanding that there is actually a difference between disliking Jews and disliking Israel, or liking the Israeli government, liking Israel. Those are really separate items, Braun said. Silber, who works with community members across religious groups, wants to see elected officials and religious leaders step up to make that difference clear as part of a multi-pronged strategy. One prong of that is education and interfaith relations, and having religious leaders be able to say, listen, you may have strong feelings about the conflict in the Middle East, and you may want to protest, and that's absolutely fine as part of the American tradition. But what's not fine is spinning off from that protest and beating someone with a crutch, with, uh, or throwing a firecracker, or throwing a bricks through windows. That's absolutely not acceptable. We need to hear that. Both online and in person, Braun says her students are not hearing that kind of support. Students are feeling lonely because they're not seeing the kind of outcry about anti-Semitism that they themselves participated in, in other formats of hate, Braun said, referring to mass protests and activism following the murder of George Floyd, uh, George Floyd or attacks against Asian Americans. Seeing silence on the internet is deafening. CNN's Nick Watt and Rosalina Nieves contributed to this story. And next from this package, distributed at CNN's website, an opinion piece, Fighting Anti-Semitism Online Requires a Global Effort. And this opinion piece is by members of the Interparliamentary uh, Task Force to Combat Online Anti-Semitism. The Interparliamentary uh, Task Force to Combat Anti-Semitism is made up of a multi-party group of lawmakers from Israel, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Given the state of global affairs, it is not a given that we, a bipartisan group of elected officials from Israel, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom, 
would find common ground in the midst of a global pandemic. However, the disconcerting proliferation of anti-Semitism through new technology demands that we take urgent action. We recently launched the Interparliamentary Task Force to combat online anti-Semitism in order to hold social media companies accountable for what takes place on their platforms and help create transparent policies to tackle hate speech. The hate that we see online isn't just harmless chatter relegated to the dark corners of the Internet. It often spills onto the streets and dangerous propaganda can quickly transcend the geographic borders of any of our countries. Combating this global hatred, therefore, requires a global solution. The launch of our task force follows grassroots initiatives, including the No Safe Space for Jew Hate campaign and repeated calls to action after social media platforms have ignored or inadequately addressed virulent anti-Semitism on their platforms. Many TikTok users, for example, encounter anti-Semitic comments despite the company's claim that it stands firmly against anti-Semitism and doesn't tolerate hate in any form. Twitter has refused to flag recurring tweets from Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, calling for the elimination of the only Jewish state in the world. According to Twitter, Khamenei's posts simply amount to foreign policy saber-rattling on political economic issues. Meanwhile, Google has not made it clear how it plans to prevent its algorithm from producing horrific and offensive search results on Jews in the Holocaust. While Facebook made the important announcement to remove Holocaust denial on its platform, pages remain that distort or deny the facts of the Holocaust, according to a study by The Markup. Last year, actually in 2019, Facebook's CEO Mark Zuckerberg published a call for help from elected officials requesting that we take a more significant role in the battle to combat hate on the Internet, and we are here to answer its call. Our task force, made up of lawmakers across the political spectrum, underscores the fact that the fight against anti-Semitism should be a nonpartisan issue in democratic countries, and that virulent anti-Semitism is a poison that exists among both the far left and far right. We are launching this process with the mission of creating consistent understanding, messaging, and policy to be used by our respective legislatures. We will hold virtual meetings, bring together experts on technology and speech from around the world to meet directly with parliamentarians and tech companies in an unprecedented way. We will engage with social media companies to stress, this, uh, to stress the tremendous duty that comes with the power that they hold, highlighting that these platforms can and should play an important role in raising awareness among their users about what content violates accepted norms while enabling the continuation of open and free dialogue. Despite the variations in our country's policies regarding hate speech, there are shared principles that can be used in battling anti-Semitism online. Recognizing when free speech crosses into dangerous hate speech enables the creation of boundaries online while protecting the fundamental freedoms of discourse. While our task force will focus on combating online anti-Semitism, we recognize that if one minority cannot be protected by policy, ultimately none can be. 
In doing so, the task force can serve as a model for the collaboration necessary to protect all minority groups from online hate. As elected officials, we also have an obligation to our constituents. We will engage with communities and organizations and publish recommendations that can help all social media users feel safer. We will hold those promoting online hate to account, and we will push companies to consider more stringent guardrails to prevent the kind of offensive and harassing content that is all too prevalent. We must come together to more skillfully combat online anti-Semitism, with social media companies recognizing their power and responsibility to prevent users from spreading corrosive hate on these platforms. Only by working together do we have a shot at making significant changes. Anti-Semitism has survived millennia because it constantly adapts. We must rise to today's challenge of fighting this hatred in its latest form by bringing together parliamentarians representing different countries and political beliefs. We are forming a united front and a global commitment to combating this deeply serious issue. And now we'll go over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, for an article, news article related to this topic. Social media companies say they ban Holocaust denial. Are they also blocking education? By Ben Sales. In October, one day after Facebook announced that it would ban Holocaust denial, Isabella Tabarovsky received an unexpected message from the platform. A 2019 post of hers promoting an article she had written on Holocaust remembrance was being removed for violating Facebook's community standards on hate speech. No further information was provided, and Tabarovsky doesn't recall being given a way to appeal the decision. She reached out to a Facebook spokesperson she found on Twitter but got no response. Facebook's decision to ban Holocaust denial came only after scholars, activists, and celebrities had pilloried the platform for allowing hate speech. But Tabarovsky is no Holocaust denier. She's a Jewish journalist who writes about Soviet Jewry, including the Holocaust in Soviet territories. The article in question was called Most Jews Weren't Murdered in Death Camps. It's time to talk about the other Holocaust. It was about how efforts at Holocaust remembrance don't focus enough on the millions of Jews who were killed outside the concentration camps, such as Tabarovsky's own relatives who were murdered at Baba Yar. It's possible that the headline tripped up an algorithm meant to, de to detect Holocaust denial, which then blocked Tabarovsky's post. She doesn't know, as she never heard from Facebook. This message popped up, and obviously the first reaction is, what did I say that was hateful, Tabarovsky told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. We've seen so much anti-Semitic speech. They can't battle it, they can't take it down, and yet they remove Holocaust education posts from 2019. It's truly incredible. Tabarovsky is among the long list of social media users whose anti-hate posts have mistakenly fallen victim to the algorithms that aim to remove free spe uh, hate speech. Companies such as Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok say they have stepped up their fight against abusive posts and disinformation, but the artificial intelligence that drives those systems, intending to root out racism or calls for genocide, can instead ensnare the efforts to combat them. Organizations that focus on Holocaust education say the problem is especially acute for them because it comes at a time when large percentages of young people are ignorant of basic facts about the Holocaust and more online than ever. 
Michelle Stein, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and Museum's Chief Communications Officer, told JTA that the museum's Facebook ads have often been rejected outright, frequently enough that it's a real problem for us. Far too often, our educational content is literally hitting a brick wall, she said. It is not okay that an ad that features a historical image of children from the 1930s wearing the yellow star is rejected, especially at a time when we need to educate the public on what that yellow badge represented during the Holocaust. The yellow star post is just one example of an ad that was blocked, Stein said. Jews who were later annihilated were forced by the Nazis to affix the stars to their clothing. Recently, the yellow star has been appropriated by protesters of everything from vaccines to Brexit, which may have made Facebook especially sensitive to the image of the star. The Holocaust Museum's ad aimed to respond to incidents like those by educating people about what the star actually signified. There have been other incidents, incident, uh, instances of Holocaust education being blocked as well. In March, Facebook deactivated the account of the Norwegian Center for Holocaust and Minority Studies for five days, as well as the accounts of 12 of its employees. When the accounts were restored, a local fake, uh, Facebook spokesperson told the Norwegian publication, I cannot say whether this is a technical error or a human error. In 2018, the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect, a Holocaust education organization in New York, had a post removed from Facebook that included a photo of emaciated Jewish children. Redfish, an outlet affiliated with the Russian state, said it had three Holocaust remembrance posts, including one with a famous picture of Elie Wiesel and others in a concentration camp barracks taken off Facebook this year. Holocaust, uh, Holocaust educators are not the only ones to protest the way social media algorithms regularly uh, regulate purportedly hateful content. Anti-racist activists have complained of their Facebook posts being treated like hate speech, prompting the platform to change its algorithm. Jewish creators on TikTok say they've been banned after posting unobjectionable Jewish content. During the recent conflict in Israel and Gaza, both pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian activists said their posts were hidden or taken off Instagram and elsewhere. Facebook, which owns Instagram, and TikTok both told JTA that users whose posts have been taken down can appeal the decision. Twitter did not respond to questions sent via email. But Stein said the reasoning for why the ads are blocked is opaque and the appeals process can sometimes take days. By the time the ads are approved, she said, the teaching moment they were meant to address has often passed. The museum has reached out to Facebook to address the issue to no avail. It's unclear to us what part of the post is the problem, so we're forced to guess. But far more importantly, it stops us from getting that message out timely, she said. Social media's great potential is not education anchored in the classroom. It's educational moments anchored in what's happening in the environment. So when you have to stop, that's a true loss. A Facebook spokesperson told JTA that it uses a combination of human and automated review to detect hate speech and that people will usually review the automated decisions. Facebook defines Holocaust denial to include posts that dispute the fact that it happened, the number of victims, the methods, and the intentionality of it. We do not rely exclusively on specific words or language to distinguish between Holocaust denial and educational content, the spokesperson told JTA. We also have escalation teams that can spend more time with content and get additional context in order for us to make a more informed decision.
TikTok likewise told JTA that human moderators review content flagged by its artificial intelligence system and that it teaches its moderators to distinguish between hate speech and what it defines as counter-speech. Neither Facebook nor Twitter provided further detail, detail on when and how posts move from AI to human moderators or how those human moderators are trained. We don't know when they're using automated tools who is deciding what anti-Semitism is, who is deciding what anti-black racism is, said Daniel Kelly, associate director of the Anti-Defamation League Center for Technology and Society. The ADL was one of the, uh, one of the organizers of a high-profile ad boycott of Facebook last year to protest what it says were lax hate speech policies. Later in the year, Facebook announced it would ban Holocaust denial and crack down on other forms of hate. Are those trained data sets based on the experience of the people from the impacted communities, Kelly asked? Does that inform how the automated systems are being created? Both Facebook and TikTok said they were committed to keeping anti-Semitism off their platforms, and TikTok said it works with the ADL as well as the World Jewish Congress to shape its moderation of anti-Semitic hate speech. The WJC also works with Facebook. It is much harder to deal with stuff like tone or context, and that's where the AI learning is critical, and that's the space for learning, but it's never going to be perfect, said Yafat Barak Cheney, the WJC's Director of International Affairs. Issues like nudity, where it's easy for machines to, dete to detect it, then like 98 or 99% of it is removed automatically before it reaches the platform. Issues like hate speech, where things like tone and content have a bigger role, then machines are not able to remove as much of it. Barack Cheney said her organization is hesitant to press platforms on overreach and moderating topics like Holocaust denial because it's more important to them that Facebook and other sites take a strong stance against hate speech. Before the WJC embarks on its annual Holocaust remembrance campaign on social media called We Remember, it will send posts to social media platforms for pre-approval to ensure that they aren't blocked out uh, when they go up. There's improvements to make, but for us to push to say, hey, you should allow more content is going to be contrary to us, asking them to make sure there's no violating content that remains and is harmful. Powell Sawicki, the spokesperson for the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum, said that if educational posts are being banned, it's at least a signal that platforms are taking the issue seriously. Sawicki said the museum hasn't had its posts blocked and that he's still worried about the potential for Holocaust denial to spread on social media despite the platform's policies. It shows some progress of removing speech is going on in social media if such context disappears, he says. Things are changing and we hope that it is real change to their approach to hate speech more universally. Tabarovsky also supports social media companies taking robust action against Holocaust denial and hate speech, but she would have liked to understand why her post was blocked and ideally to find a way to avoid having her posts removed. Last week, after JTA inquired about the post and more than six months after it had been removed, Facebook restored it to the platform. It's just crazy when you're dealing with a robot that can't tell the difference between Holocaust denial and Holocaust education, Tabarovsky said. How did we get to this point as humanity where we're outsourced, where we've outsourced such important decisions to robots. It's just nuts. 
And next from JTA, a veritable sigh of relief, how the world's Jewish community came together to bring aid to Surfside by Ron Campeas, Surfside, Florida. I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, Steve Eisenberg tells me. We're standing in the shul of Bal Harbor last Sunday in its social hall under construction. Two days earlier, on Friday evening just before Shabbat, it was piled high with blankets, clothing, mattresses, food, and toiletries for the families made homeless after a building in this town of 6,000 collapsed into a pile of rubble. Now it's almost empty thanks to people like Eisenberg and Judith Greisman, a tall uh, businesswoman in jeans and a black women's international Zionist organization t-shirt with blonde hair pulled back tightly, who's busy giving volunteers orders laced with smiles. The, smi the supplies are going out to families made homeless by the collapse, settling into temporary housing. Eisenberg has been matching families with apartments owned by Snowbirds, non-Florida residents who returned home for the summer. Guys, does anyone know if we have syringes? Grossman shouts. The question I had posed to Eisenberg was how he got involved in the recovery efforts. I presume by his insistent I'm a Jew response that he is answering the question of why he got involved, not how. So I repeat my initial query. No, I'm wrong. He's getting at the how. Eisenberg lives across the street from the Shul of Bow Harbor and is part of this tight-knit community. Surfside is at least one-third Jewish. That's why within hours of the collapse of Champlain Tower South at 1.30 a.m. Thursday, the texts, WhatsApp messages, and calls lit up his phone. Across the street and across the ocean, Jews came together to bring relief to a crowded little beachside community, devastated by a sudden, unfathomable loss. Eisenberg knows at least ten people in the rubble, as he puts it, and he knows them because they are Jewish, and he is Jewish, and they are part of his community. Brad Cohen, I was under the chuppah with him, he says, meaning he was a witness at Cohen's wedding. I saw him every day. As of Wednesday morning, the, deaths to, uh, the death toll stood at 16, with more than 140 people still missing. The woman in her 30s schlepping boxes at the Surfside Community Center four blocks down, about a mile from the building collapse, says the same thing. She grew up in the Cuban Jewish community, and there were these ladies her mother was friends with, and though she wasn't close to them, now that she's grown up, she always said hello when she saw them on the street, and now they're gone. But not quite. The missing peek out from behind faded roses on printouts thick with Miami's wet 90-degree heat pinned to a fence overlooking the rubble. A grinning young man, Andres Levine, leans into a woman's head, her hand languidly appropriating his shoulder. A man in a tux, a blonde, leans into his chest. The text reads, Dr. Brad Cohen's brother Gary, also a doctor, is missing as well. There is something unbearably poignant about the parenthetical aside, also a doctor with a capital D, not one but two good men are missing. Ilan Nabrif and Deborah Beredzbin, says another printout. A happy young couple poses arm in arm, crowns touching against a seascape, maybe the one just beyond the rubble, its salt lacing and acrid stench. 
The printout is partially obscured by a string of prayer beads hanging off the fence. This is not just a Jewish tragedy. Everyone knows that. The beads, the crucifixes, one as blue as the Miami sky when it's clear of the rains, the leather-bound New Testament on the pavement abutting the fence, the yellow note hanging precipitously making a plea in Jesus' name. The circle of evangelical Christians standing next to the memorial fence holding hands and belting out prayers in Spanish. The relics that are heartbreaking in their, un, uh, in their universal meaning. The toy truck, the battered super soaker. Among those who remain missing, the shul says are, uh, that about 40 are Jewish, meaning most are not Jewish. And the Jews who have come together from across the world, the rescue teams from Israel, from Mexico, from Canada, know it. It's not only about Jews, said Nachman Shai, the Israeli minister for the diaspora, who was given VIP treatment when he visited here this week, accompanying Israeli rescuers. I have to make sure that that's fully understood. It's about human beings. It's about a national tragedy. Rafael Polk, the spokesman for the United Hatzalah team from Israel, describes how Hatzalah's trained counselors are working on the second floor of the Grand Beach Hotel, where the families, Jewish and non-Jewish, sit and wait. It's a state of unknowing, and that can cause a sense of helplessness, he says. Helplessness is the beginning of what can lead to an emotional reaction or traumatic stress reaction. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're engaging them to help the people around them if we see there's a need, because they're often in the same place, the same location with other families. So even if they're not doing anything that moment, they can go and help another family, can have a conversation with them, they can talk with them, they can interact with them. There are Jewish ways of knowing, and there is a Jewish way of unknowing. The Jewish tradition of the Shomrim, the Guardians, are seeking permission to stake out the rubble, or watch over the dead, or more precisely, the people who may be dead until they are buried or miraculously alive. No one knows with absolute certainty who is dead and who is alive. We have rabbis who are on call who are ready to be with families as they receive notifications, says Jacob Solomon, the longtime president of the Greater Miami Jewish Federation. It's hard to extract meaning from so arbitrary an event, one without intention. A rabbi gives a shiur, a lesson, following Havdalah services Saturday night at the shul, and mentions the building collapsed perfunctorily, saying the services were in the honor of the dead and missing. He launches into a fire and brimstone sermon about the fast of Tammuz 17, which begins that night, and how the sins of the Jews merited its privations. Miami's Jewish community is more insular, Solomon says, because so much of its first generation from Israel, from Venezuela, from Mexico, from Central America, they see being Jewish as a way of holding on to the identity that they brought with them, he says. That means closer relations to Israel. Our 2014 demographic study, you'll see that we have the highest percentage of adult Jews who have been to Israel, the highest percentage of emotional connection to Israel. Just weeks before the building collapse, some of the same people volunteering this week were turning up at the protests against the spike in anti-Semitism following the Israel-Gaza conflict. Polk says he was bowled over by the welcome for the Israelis. Once the Israeli teams landed, there was a veritable sigh of relief, he says. 
the families basically felt like, you know, you guys are here to help, and it's amazing you came all this way. They appreciate just the fact that we came. It gave them a sense of relief and a sense of hope. At a news conference, Surfside Mayor Charles Burkett, who has been coordinating search and uh, rescue efforts with Miami-Dade County authorities as well as with the international teams, describes an encounter he had on Sunday morning at the Grand Beach Hotel. One of the questions from the residents was pretty poignant, Burkett says. They wanted to know if the Israeli team thought that the Miami-Dade team had been doing the right thing. The gentleman, the commander from the Israeli team, did not hesitate. He turned around and said they'd been doing exactly the right thing, which was a beautiful validation. Shai was not surprised when he heard the story. Jews around the world look at Israel as a source of support, he says, and sometimes even as a source to come and save them, or they look to themselves. Eisenberg at the shul scrolls through his text messages and holds them up for me to see. Jews from around the country who want to help. Who can I talk to at the shul? A man from New York asks. We have crisis response canines. A Baltimore woman wants to help set up a database of the missing. Eisenberg looks around at the emptying storage area. I don't know how this got done. There was no person leading it. No one person leading it, he says. Judith Groisman is circling again. I need a volunteer to help me bring mattresses, she says. And next, some news briefs from JTA. Republican lawmakers in Washington State and Alaska liken coronavirus mandates to Nazi laws, a phenomenon that Holocaust remembrance and Jewish groups have said is offensive. State Representative Jim Walsh of Washington wore a yellow star over the weekend in a speech to conservative activists in Lacey. It's an echo from history, Walsh wrote on a Facebook page where the event was recorded, the Seattle Times reported, in the current context we are all Jews. Walsh apologized Wednesday afternoon on a conservative radio talk show. This gesture went too far, he said, on the Jason Rance show on KTTHAM 770, adding, it was inappropriate and offensive. I'm terribly sorry that it happened and that I was a part of it. Washington does not require vaccinations, but employers must verify that employees are vaccinated before lifting mask mandates. In Alaska, State Representative Ron Gillum posted on Facebook a photo of Nazis being executed, the Anchorage Daily News reported. Members of the media who lied and misled the German people were executed right along with medical doctors and nurses who participated in medical experiments using live living people as guinea pigs, Gilliam wrote. Those who forget the past are condemned to relive it. Gilliam removed the post when the local media informed him that it was a photo of Nazis being executed in Ukraine 1946. The lawmaker told the media he removed the post only because the photo was inaccurate and that he was not advocating for executing media but for accountability. Alaska does not mandate vaccinations, although its government encourages them. A number of Republicans across the country have drawn fire for likening coronavirus protections to the Nazi era. U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, apologized for making the comparison. Speaking of Walsh, D. Simon, the director of the Seattle-based Holocaust Center for Humanity, told the Seattle Times our government is making an effort to protect their own citizens, not kill them. If Gwen Goldman, 
had been named the Batgirl for the New York Yankees and not been given the honor of throwing out the first pitch, it would have been enough. A retired social worker from Westport, Connecticut, Goldman, 70, got to be a Batgirl at a Yankees game Monday night, 60 years after the team turned her down because she was a girl. General Manager Brian Cashman proffered the invite after hearing that she had been rejected for the position in 1961. Goldman still has the letter she received that year from then-GM Roy Hamey, who explained that a young lady such as yourself would feel out of place in a dugout. This week, Goldman not only got a turn in the dugout, but throughout the first pitch, wore the classic Yankee pinstriped uniform, and met the players. It just kept coming and coming, she said of the honors, saying Dayenu, the Hebrew word meaning that just one of the gestures would have been sufficient. Representative Ilan Omar has sparked a fresh round of criticism from some in the Jewish community by saying in a CNN interview that her Jewish Democratic colleagues who call her anti-Semitic haven't been partners in justice. Jewish anchor Jake Tapper asked Omar on Tuesday, on air, if she understood why some of your fellow House Democrats, especially Jews, have found some of her past comments anti-Semitic. Tapper cited a 2012 tweet in which the Minnesota lawmaker said Israel has hypnotized the world and her 2019 comment that APAC, the prominent Israel lobby, is all about the Benjamins. In response, Omar said that she has welcomed opportunity to engage, opportunities to engage with her critics, but added, I think it's important for these members to realize that they haven't been partners in justice, they haven't been equally engaging in seeking justice around the world. Omar has been among the most vocal Israel critics in Congress and supports conditioning U.S. aid money to the country, an option firmly opposed by many of her Democratic House colleagues. She is also one of only a few Democrats in Congress to support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. Her 2019 APAC comment and subsequent statements about Israel strained relations with Jews in her state's district and across the United States. Conservative Jewish groups such as the Republican Jewish Coalition quickly criticized her comment from Tuesday. Will U.S. Jewish Dems join us in calling out Ilan Omar for saying Jewish members of Congress aren't partners in justice? Or is the JDCA and Hallie Seufer going to show us all once again that they're frauds? Avi Mayer, Managing Director of Global Communications for the Nonpartisan American Jewish Committee, said Omar's words draw on classic anti-Semitic themes about Jewish clannishness, the notion that Jews only look out for themselves. Other Jews, meanwhile, came to Omar's defense. Representative David Siciline of Rhode Island said on Twitter that right-wingers in Washington are once again claiming Representative Ilhan Omar said something she didn't say and trying to create a controversy where there is none. It's pathetic that they are once again demonizing a young woman of color to score political points, he added. Omar retweeted Cicciolini's comments, adding, It's their mission to turn and twist everything I say until I am completely silenced. On Wednesday morning, Omar also posted a long thread of tweets about the history of black Jewish cooperation, beginning the statement that many of my colleagues, both Jewish and non-Jewish, deeply share a commitment to fighting injustice. I also know that the black community and the Jewish community have historically stood side by side in the fight against injustice and throughout our history we have faced efforts to divide us based on our differences, she wrote in one tweet. 
The thread drew praise from more centrist Democratic Jews, including Hallie Seufer, CEO of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, and Representative Dean Phillips, who also hails from Minnesota. On behalf of generations of Jewish community members in Minnesota and throughout the country who have stood hand-to-hand with our brothers and sisters of color in the fight against discrimination in all its forms, we thank you, Phillips Road. It's been seven decades since the New York Rangers had a star Jewish defenseman. This season, they had the best defenseman, defenseman in the National Hockey League, Jewish or otherwise. Adam Fox, a native of New York's suburban Long Island and a longtime Rangers fan, was named the winner of the James Norris Memorial Trophy on Tuesday, signifying the top, de- top defenseman. The 23-year-old, a former star at Harvard, joins Hall of Famer Bobby Orr of the Boston Bruins to win the award in their second seasons. It's special, said Fox, whose father is a longtime season ticket holder for the Rangers, according to the New York Post. I've been throwing that word around a lot for the last few weeks, and it's now accurate for how I feel. You hear your name with Orr and Leach, it's always going to be a special, special thing. He was referencing Brian Leach, a former Rangers defenseman and also a Norris Trophy winner. Along with stopping opposing scorers, Fox led NHL defensemen with 42 assists while finishing second in points with 47. He also was recognized as first-team All-League. Asked by the New York Post about being one of the NHL's few Jewish athletes, he said in a 2019 interview, it's definitely nice to represent a community for sure. Fox follows in the footsteps of one High Buller, who played three seasons for the Rangers in the early 1950s. He was named to the NHL second All-Star team in 1951-52, according to the iconic hockey writer Stan Fischler, also Jewish. Fox, like Bueller, is five foot eleven. Uh, like Buller, is five foot eleven and weighs 181 pounds, compensating for a lack of size with speed. And he's a fan favorite, also like Buller. Buller's connection to the large Jewish population in New York was used by Rangers management to attract a new audience to the home games, Fischler recalls one remembrance. Banners emblazoned with the Star of David hung from the garden, and his faith was frequently reinforced by sports writers. The Rangers also featured Alex Levinsky, a Jewish defenseman in the 1930s. In 2019, the New Jersey Devils drafted Jack Hughes, the first Jewish player to be picked number one. Stone-throwing teenagers smashed multiple windows of a 19th-century synagogue building in Romania. No one was hurt in Monday's incident at the synagogue of Orasti in the western part of the country. Police have labeled it an act of vandalism. A spokesperson was quoted as telling the Styril Transylvanae newspaper. The spokesman did not say whether it was being treated as a hate crime. Several teens, all minors, have been identified in connection with the stone throwing. Two archaeologists noticed the damage earlier this week. The website reported, Arasti does not have an active Jewish community. The synagogue was renovated some 15 years ago. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.